You're listening to a sermon preached at Redeeming Life Church. Good morning. For those of you staying in here with me, we're going to be in Romans chapter 4, verses 13 through 25. It's on page 1000 if you're using one of those pew Bibles somewhere around you or under a seat. If you're using the, the uh, right now, excuse me, the version Bible app, I've put lots and lots of extra stuff in there and you can follow along in that location too. So if you want to open your Bible or open your app, so we have Bibles open and we are studying together, I think that would be excellent. Let's start this with the reading of a very fascinating block of Scripture. It's a little bit longer than we've been going through as we're working our way through the book of Romans, but I think in its entirety it's, it's rich. So we're going to read together Romans chapter 4, verses 13 through 25. This is God's Word. For the promise to Abraham or to his descendants that he would inherit the world was not through the law, but through the righteousness that comes by faith. If those who are of the law are heirs, faith is made empty and the promise is nullified because the law produces wrath. And where there is no law, there is no transgression. This is why the promise is by faith, so that it may be according to grace to guarantee it to all the descendants, not only those who are of the law, but also those who are of Abraham's faith. He is the father of us all, as it is written, I have made you the father of many nations. He is our father in God's sight, in whom Abraham believed, the God who gives life to the dead and calls things into existence that do not exist. He believed, hoping against hope, so that he became the father of many nations, according to what has been spoken, so will your descendants be. He did not weaken in faith when he considered his own body to be already dead since he was about a hundred years old and also the deadness of Sarah's womb. He did not waver in unbelief at God's promise but was strengthened in his faith and gave glory to God because he was fully convinced that what God had promised he was also able to do. Therefore, it was credited to him for righteousness. Now, it was credited to him was not written for Abraham alone, but also for ours. Excuse me, for us. It will be credited to us who believe in him who raised Jesus our Lord from the dead. He was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. This is God's word. Thank you for reading along with me. Let's pray now as we begin to unpack this and, and see what God would have for us this morning. Lord, this morning as we seek to hear from your word and to understand and to be moved and to be shaped and to be conformed to your will. Lord, strengthen our belief. God, help us to know us more. Help us to know you more so that you would speak to us more clearly, so that we would understand who you are, so that our belief and that our faith would be, would be rich and deeply rooted in you. I thank you for this word and I thank you for the gospel. Lord, please help me to preach this clearly and to proclaim it as you would have it to be proclaimed in ways that would change our lives and draw us nearer to you. It's in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I see some faces in here that I either haven't seen in a while or I don't recognize, so I'll let you know that we've been journeying our way through 
the book of Romans, just a little section at a time. Uh, I've been saying a pericope at a time, and then the other day I heard one of our young youth kids say, I was looking at this pericope and thinking about it. I thought, oh, we're teaching our kids big words. A pericope is just a little section of Scripture self-contained. But we've been going through it a little bit at a time, and now um, what we've seen up to this point is Paul's laboring, his working, his arguing, and he's arguing the point, <clears throat> his thesis, the righteous will live by faith. That's Romans 1.17. First, he showed us that, that we're not alive, we're actually dead in our depravity and in our sin, and we're unable to bring ourselves to life. Next, he showed us that God is right in his judgment, and that judgment is, is good even though it might be hard to see. God gave us the law to show us this grave problem, and then we would see ourselves that judgment is necessary, and there's no hope of life found in the law. He was been, he's been arguing there's no work we can do to rectify this problem. Then, as he's been moving through his argument, Paul contends and shows us where we can find life and where we can find righteousness and how we can be made alive and how we can be justified to stand before God in a right relationship, vindicated and redeemed. So he said in Romans 3.22, moving along in his argument, he said, the righteousness of God is through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. And at that point now he has to make his case and he he appeals to some illustrations the Jewish people would know well, and so he goes to the example of Abraham, who they knew as Father Abraham, the father of the nations. Abraham believed God before he did any works. He believed God before he received the sign of circumcision, and therefore Abraham was justified and made righteous or made right before God. That's where Paul has been going. And now at this point, by the time we get to Romans 4.12, we see that the argument is going. Abraham has been doing this. There's much of this theology we should know. And then when we jump to Romans 5.1, he says, Therefore, since we have been declared righteous by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Do you see what's happened? We made a jump between Romans 4.12 and Romans 5.1. It went from Abraham's faith, Abraham's belief, Abraham's justification to our faith. We. We've been brought into the story. A connection has been made. That's what Romans 4.13-25 that we just read is. It's the bridge. It's how we go from Abraham's uh, how to, how we go from Abraham's promise, how we go from Abraham's application to now tangible, meaningful ways in our own life. We do the same. Paul has been trying to persuade you to this point so that when he got here and when he got to the we and when he got to the us, you would be among the we and among the us who believe and who live by faith. Now, the question is, how does Paul get us from Abraham being made righteous because he believed that he would have a child and that he would father nations to 
us being made righteous because we believe that Jesus died on a cross and was raised from the grave. How, how do we get there? What is happening in this text? Well, I, I certainly hope God will help me, but this is what I hope to show us. Because we've spent a lot of time in the, in the theological argument, and it would be tragic if we missed the bridge. And if it just was head knowledge and didn't make that, that move to our heart and the move to our faith. So, Lord, help me to speak this clearly. Help us to see. It starts with a promise. It, it started not with a promise in the law, but with a promise that depended on faith. So let's look back at Romans uh, 4, verses 13 through 16. For the promise to Abraham, or to his descendants, that he would inherit the world, was not through the law, but through the the righteousness that comes by faith. If those who are of the law are heirs, faith is made empty and the promise nullified because the law produces wrath. And where there is no law, there is no transgression. This is why the promise is by faith so that it may be according to grace to guarantee uh, all, to guarantee it to all the descendants, not only to those who are of the law, but also those who are of Abraham's faith. It's a promise. And we go all the way back to Genesis 15, we see the beginning of that promise. We see the story of that promise specifically to Abraham. Abraham told God that he was concerned. He said, I'm old and I'm not going to have any children, which is a big deal back then, and I'm not going to have an heir. And it's just going to end with, with me. In Genesis 15, 4, God says, This one will not be your heir. He was pointing to one of his servants that Abraham was saying. God said, instead, one who comes from your own body will be your heir. Not Eliezer of Damascus, not your servant. Your own child will be your heir. And there's the promise, at least part of it. He goes on to say, and there will be many descendants, and there will be land, and you will live here. But without that part, the rest of it is pointless. That's the meat and potatoes of the promise. Abraham... You're going to have a child. Now, that doesn't seem like that big of a deal. Who cares? People have kids all the time, right? Except there is one problem. If you look at Romans 4.19, it says, He did not weaken, he, Abraham, did not weaken in faith when he considered his own body to be already dead since he was about 100 years old. And also the deadness of Sarah's womb. He hit pause, he looked around and went, I'm 100, I'm as good, I'm already decomposing. My wife, she's old too, and her womb is dead. She's never had a child, she's barren, there is a deadness in her womb. Think about the oldest couple you know who are alive. Think about the oldest living couple you know. And imagine your reaction when tomorrow morning they call you up and say, hey, we're pregnant. We're having a baby. Like, that's impossible, right? I mean, uh, I don't know. I mean, there's a lot that goes into this, right? God promised to bring life from a dead man and from a dead womb. That was the promise. Life from death. Romans 4.17 says, As it is written, I have made you the father of many nations. He is our father in God's sight, in whom Abraham believed. Now listen to this. And God, 
who give, excuse me, the God, Abraham believed the God who gives life to the dead and calls things into existence that do not exist. Abraham believed. His faith didn't waver. But we all have doubt, right? We understand doubt. We understand what it means to waver, don't we? So how is it possible that 100-year-old Abraham and his wife and his circumstances didn't cause him to waver? Would it not be easy for Abraham to say, yeah, right, that's going to happen? I don't think so. What do you know that I don't know, God? It would be easy to have that conversation, but verse 19 says, he considered his own circumstances, but as we read on, we find the promise wasn't based on his own circumstances. His own circumstances were impossible. Romans 4, verses 20 and 21 says, he did not waver in unbelief at God's promise, but was strengthened in his faith and gave glory to God because, here's how, here's why, he was fully convinced that what God has promised, he was also able to do. It didn't matter that he was 100. It didn't matter that Sarah's womb was, was dead. God was the reason he trusted the promise, God's abilities, God's promise. Abraham knew God well enough to know that God keeps his promises. He would have had to have known God in some way to know that. He knew, him God, he knew him well enough to know that God is powerful enough to keep his promises. See, Abraham knew God. So it wasn't about Abraham's abilities. I mean, he was a dead man, right? It was about God's ability, the one who brings dead bones to life and brings from nothing something. Now, a lot of people talk about Abraham's faith as being blind faith. This wasn't blind faith at all. This was fully reasoned, absolutely convinced by the facts, faith. This wasn't Abraham going, well, I, I, I'm gonna, I think God might be like this. I think he might be like, man, I sure wish God was like that. This wasn't Abraham going, well, the God that I worship would be like this. or would be like This isn't a God of Abraham's creation. This isn't a God of Abraham's wishes. This is a God whom Abraham knew. He spent time with him. He understood him. And he let God define to Abraham who God was and what God was capable of doing. Abraham was not creating some mysterious false God in his own mind and then hoping on that. He knew. He reasoned. He saw. There was evidence. There was facts. And it was because of this belief in the God in whom he is that righteousness was credited to Abraham. That kind of belief. It was credited to Abraham. But Paul goes on, and he says it can also be credited to us. This kind of faith, this kind of belief, this righteousness can be credited or given to us. How? How? In the exact same way. It's not any different. Abraham believed, verse 17 says, the God who gives life to the dead and calls things into existence who don't exist. He's the same yesterday, today, and forever. God hasn't changed. The situation hasn't changed. I mean, we're not believing that God is going to make us have kids in our old age. That's not what we need to believe. 
We're not believing that God is going to make us a great nation, that we're going to be a big family. We're not sitting here putting all of our hope and trust and, and facts into family. We're putting them into God. We're putting them into the one who can raise dead bones. We're putting our belief and our hope and our trust in the one who would bring Jesus to life after death on a cross. So what's more unbelievable? Let's just play a little awkward game here for a moment, because I know some of you are going to take this to weird places. Now that I said it, you're definitely going to. What's more unbelievable? A 100-year-old man and a 90-year-old woman having a baby or that Jesus would raise from the dead. If you had to pick which one was more likely, which one would you go with? Right? The Guinness Book of World Records says that Dawn Brooke is the oldest woman to naturally conceive and give birth to a child. She was 59, and it happened in 1997. Now, the oldest woman to conceive with the help of in vitro fertilization treatments gave birth uh, to a child, and she was 74. Okay, we're getting closer to 90 and 100, right? There's still a pretty good gap. But with those facts in mind, you might go, well, it's maybe kind of reasonable. I don't know. I mean, it, possibly, I suppose. But Jesus, on the other hand, was severely beaten, and he was nailed to a cross, and that's not even the beginning of the difficulty. Not even close. As God's word said, he who knew no sin was made to be sin. To take the full death penalty wrath of God for every single sin and every single sinning person who would ever be saved. That's a lot of death penalties. All at the same time. God killed him. Jesus was dead on Friday under that crushing blow. Under all those death penalty punishments being enforced simultaneously. He was dead on Friday. But on Sunday, God raised him from the dead. Romans 4:22 through 24 says therefore it was credited to him, talking about Abraham, for righteousness. Now it was credited to him, was not written for Abraham alone, but also for us. Listen, it will be credited to us who believe in him who raised Jesus our Lord from the dead. Out of the impossibility, God works in his ability. And we're called to believe. And when we believe, it's counted as righteousness. Listen to Romans 10.9. If you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord, and just for those of you who might not be familiar with that, that means you're going to let him call the shots. He's going to define everything about your life. He is Lord. He's the boss, right? If you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you'll be saved. That's the promise that we believe. That's the one in whom we look to place our faith and our trust. And if you believe, it says, you will be saved. We are called by God to believe. We're called to believe in the God who gives life to death, and he calls things into existence that do not exist. 
That sounds an awful lot like your salvation, doesn't it? Sounds an awful lot like being born again, does it not? We are called to believe that Jesus was raised from the dead. And if we believe that Jesus was raised from the dead, then we can also believe that God will raise us from the dead. If he couldn't do it in Jesus, he's not going to do it in you. If he couldn't save Jesus, he's not going to save you. You see that connection? And here's the irony. When you believe that he could raise Jesus from the dead, it's counted to you in your belief, and he can raise you from the dead. Romans 8, 11 says, If the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead lives in you, and now I pray he does, then he who raised Christ from the dead will also bring your mortal bodies to life through his spirit who lives in you. Believing that Jesus was raised from the dead, that he is who he says he is, that God did what he said he would do by his ability and his promises and his power is how one is saved. And when you believe these promises, this truth, it is credited to you as righteousness. Righteousness is right standing, rightness with God. What do you believe about Jesus' death and resurrection? What do you believe about Jesus' death and resurrection? That is a critical question of Christianity, hands down. It might be the single most important question in Christianity. Not if you're a good person, not what you do, not if you call yourself a Christian, not if you're born in a good family, not if you have good church attendance. What do you say of Jesus' death and resurrection? It's easy to believe his death, is it not? It's easy to believe that that, uh, he professed to be God, he professed to be the Lamb of God who would take away the sins of the world, that he spoke many things and that the Romans got super mad and they nailed him to a cross and killed him. That's not a stretch. That's pretty easy. It's easy to believe the Pharisees would want him dead for saying he was equal with God. I mean, they picked up stones and tried to stone him on numerous occasions. That's not a stretch. It's even easy to believe that he would die in our place for our sin. That's not that hard to believe. Someone's got to die. I guess it'll be Jesus. It gets a little different when we're asked to believe that he'd be raised from the dead, does it not? That's entirely something else. And where this gets the most fascinating to me is a verse that we could so easily skip over. And it's Romans 4.25. I got to tell you, I wrestled with this for a long time before I finally realized I think this line is the most critical in this line of argument before we get to 5.1. This is the bridge. This is where everything changes for us. Let me read it. He, he's talking about Jesus, He was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. Let me ask you, and and some of you might get a little lost in the grammar sauce here, but hang with me. What is the and doing in this sentence? He was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. I want you to notice what it does not say. It does not say he was delivered up and raised for our trespasses and justification. 
was delivered up for trespasses. He was raised for our justification. How does that work? Well, he was delivered up for the payment of our sin. He was killed for our sin. God says sin has a penalty. The penalty is death. Jesus paid that death. He was delivered up to do that. But there's still more to do, right? There's still more that Jesus would have to do for us to be in right standing. This is called double imputation. Imputation means that we have imputed our sin onto Jesus. Jesus now has all of our sin. He became sin who knew no sin. He has all of our sin, and he dies under the crushing weight of the penalty of that sin because we imputed onto him our sin. But we're still not in right standing, are we? You go, well, what do you mean? Of course we are. Eh, I don't think so. Let me see if I can illustrate this for you. Last night, I go to Ace. It's moments before they're going to close, and I'm trying to buy a couple things. We moved our hot tub. And so I'm, I'm there, I'm picking up my stuff, and I start noticing while I'm coming up and kind of finishing, looking for a drill bit, coming up, and everybody's like running around all crazy. And one of the employees is on the phone, and it's just like something has obviously happened. And I get up to the cash register, and the guy's like kind of shaking. He's like, I'm sorry, and I can hear this other employee over here talking to probably the owner or the manager or something. And the kid at the register tells me that this lady just came through. She went around the back side of the aisle. She picked up a few hundred dollars of tools, zipped out the doors, got in a waiting car, and drove off. So they're pretty rattled. I mean, a bunch of, I mean, that's a bad, right? And now let's imagine for a minute, if that had happened, that did happen, but let's imagine, this is the big stretch of imagination. Let's imagine that I was wealthy. And I said, hey, you know what? I'll tell you what. I'll tell you what, I'll just pay for it. Do you know what she stole? Do you know the value of it? In fact, here, we'll cover more than that and you can keep the change. Here you go, here's a few hundred dollars. I shell it out, I give it to the employees. The owner's on the phone, of course. He says, oh, you don't have to do that. Thank you, on and on, right? That's fine. No big deal. Is there a problem? All the stuff the woman stole was paid for. All her sins were paid for. What's going to happen when she comes back to go shopping there? Are they going to embrace her with arms wide open and go, oh, your sins are paid for. All the stuff you took, hey, we just want to give you big hugs, and this is all super great. We love you. You're our favorite person to shop at the store. Are they going to do that? Do they even still have the ability, maybe in some way, to keep her out? Is there a possibility she could steal again? Is she in right standing with the owners of Ace Hardware? but I paid for the stuff. What's the problem? This is the problem. It's one thing that our sin is imputed upon Jesus and he pays for it. It's an entirely different thing that after that, his righteousness is imputed on us so that we would have permanent and forever good standing with God. And it says, and he was raised for our justification. Justification means right standing before God. He was raised so that he could impute his righteousness on us. It's not enough that he died for our sins. He has to put us in right standing with his righteousness. Neither of these things we could do for ourselves, but we need them, certainly. We need them. Christ's death and resurrection involves both of these things. That's a pretty important and, isn't it? 
It's not enough that he died. He had to be raised again. This is why we need more than the get-out-of-jail-free card. Many Christians see Jesus as their get-out-of-jail-free. He paid for that stuff, but they fail to see that he's moving us into his righteousness. He's giving us a life in which we can stand before God and God sees the same and similar relationship that he has with Jesus with us. My son bought you. His blood is on you. We fail to see that that relationship is what we long for. And a lot of people act like all they want is to get out from underneath the debt. But they don't want to live in the righteousness of Jesus Christ. They don't want to live in the sanctification that's growing us in more and more of his righteousness, that we would look more and more like him every day as we grow and we know him. Those things don't save you. But we should sure long for them more and more, should we not? We should want Jesus. We should long for Jesus. So many people say, oh, I just, you know what, I just want to go to heaven because I don't want to be here. Or I just want to go to heaven because I'd sure like to be in heaven than, than be in hell. Or whatever the case may be. But your heart should be such that it doesn't matter where you are as long as you're with Jesus because the prize of the gospel and the reward is Jesus. His righteousness. The relationship he provides. Worshiping him permanently, constantly, and being in that right relationship with God and having that peace. I've heard people say, well, I don't want to go to heaven if my family's not there. That should not be what we're looking for. I don't want to go to heaven if Jesus is not there. Moses going into the promised land said, God, if you're not going, I don't want to be there. What a beautiful picture. We should long for our sins to be paid for, certainly. And we should worship because he makes us righteous when we don't deserve it. How do we have this kind of relationship? That's the point Paul has been making for all these four chapters. That's his argument. He went to one of his local churches. He said, I only came preaching Christ and him crucified. That's what this is about. Christ and him crucified. He would go to the cross to pay for our sins. That he would raise from the grave to impute upon us his righteousness. That's what all of this has been leading up to. That's what we're to believe. That's what we're to live in. That's why we worship. This is the gospel. The righteous will live by faith. That's been the point we've been making in this series from the moment Paul made that declaration. If you remember, I shared that that's what changed Martin Luther's life. I pray that's what changes your life. Everything following that up to this point has been to prove that that's true. The righteous shall live by faith. Faith is believing the promises of God. Faith is believing that God has the power to do what he says he will do. Faith is believing that God will raise the dead to life and out of what doesn't exist make something to exist. Your salvation, your faith. This is faith. And it is by this faith God is calling us to live. Let's pray. Lord, there's a, a lot of argument here. 
There's a lot of illustration. There's a lot of discussion in the words that you spoke to Paul and through Paul. Lord, it is my request that you would help us to see, that you would help us to believe. And God, your word says you bring from death life. I'm asking God that you would bring those who don't know you, who are dead in their trespasses to life, that they'd be born again. I'm asking, Lord, that those of us who are, who are dabbling in and wrestling with the world and with the hell that's around us, that you would bring life, more life, those you've raised to new life, that you would grow to live in it in wonderful, flourishing, enjoyable ways because we're with you. God, I, I praise you for that double imputation, that you would take our sin and you would give us your righteousness. It's so unfair from our perspective, but it should bring you so much glory. It's why we should worship you. It's why we should shape the way we live by the promises you've made to us and be so grateful for it. So Lord God, I ask that you would help us to continue to see this, that you would help our belief, that you would help us in our unbelief, that you would grow us in our faith, that you would move and motivate us, Lord, to live in this and not only live, but tell others how they can live in it too. And Lord, that we would really live in the design of life that you have given us and that we would do so by faith, faith in the promises that you've made and your ability to do them. It's in Jesus, our wonderful Savior, it's name I ask and, and pray all of this. Amen. We'd love to have you as our guest. For more information, visit redeeminglifeutah.org.